So this morning we continue our ordinary time series in the Minor Prophets, uh, asking that the Spirit would give us ears to hear what they might say to us today in terms of us thinking about the both large and systemic and global issues that we see in our news feeds every day, as well as the intensely personal things that we see in our everyday ordinary life. So our reading in Nahum this morning alerts us to one of the big threads in the whole Bible, and that is the notion of kingdoms and conflict. And it happens in our reading on two levels. One is you have the world's dominating power, Assyria, in their capital Nineveh, that is wrecking havoc in the world anywhere and everywhere they can. And I don't have enough time to describe to you their brutality. Just trust me, they were one of, if not the most brutal regime in the history of humanity. Where's God? How does this happen? They appear to be winning. And then you've got kind of kingdoms in conflict with reference to Israel and the people of God who are in conflict with him over the fact that they seem to be being punished for their little sins when Assyria seems to get away with its large sins. Where's God in this? How does this make sense? And so from that day, many thousands of years ago, up to today, this remains. For God's loving and wise purposes. He allows the appearance, if not the fact, of kingdoms in conflict. But the passage ends with, this is all under divine wisdom and divine power. And so our readings this morning point us, I hope, towards an imagination for faithful and confident followership of Jesus in the crazy times that we live in. And they're crazy changing, and they're crazy every bit as systemically as what was happening to Israel with Assyria. And, you know, sometimes we feel that, sometimes we don't, but then occasionally we're smacked in the face with an image like Island. A-Y-L-A-N. That three-year-old little boy who washed up on the beach in Turkey. Who, in a ship overcrowded with refugees trying to make it to Europe, it capsized. His father, I understand, was driving the boat. Capsized. The father couldn't hold all the children in his arms. And Island and the other children actually slip, slip away and his wife slip away to their death. And he washes up on the beach because somebody thinks they have to win. And it's all justified. I wouldn't do this except for it's important. So some religion, some economic power, something to do with social psychology, something to do with just maybe someone's ego. And so this notion of kingdoms in conflict remains with us today. And so, you know, you hear things occasionally about, you know, Putin and now Putin in the USA, you know, now getting upset about what's happening in Syria or the Chinese economy wreaking havoc on the world or the killings that we see now almost every day in the newspaper. They happen all over the world, 
three, four, five, 15, 18 people killed. There, that happens multiple times a day now. And it all shows up in our news feeds. See, this didn't show up. This didn't used to show up on our phones. And, and now it shows up with this relentless drumbeat. And this is much of what Israel is feeling. The, the, kind of the background or theme from Nahum is generations of brutality from Assyria that raised for them kind of a core question or a core concern. It went something like this. We know God deals with us because we're in exile and we're being brutally treated. So the prophets and you know, our religious leaders, we know that God deals with us. But does God deal with the others? Is he strong enough? This is what you need to catch. This is what underlies Nahum. Is he strong enough? The kind of psychology, you know, personal psychology and the overall social psychology here is, what if Yahweh is just another national God? And what if what's happening in these kingdoms in conflict is that Yahweh is just kind of provincial God, just like the Assyrian gods, and what's happening here is it's like halftime and Yahweh's way behind. As we say, he's kind of getting his butt kicked. This is, this is the social psychology. And people are wondering, what's real here? Is God sovereign over all the earth? Is God sovereign over all history? The big psychological question is, is he big enough? Is he strong enough to deal with Assyria and their gods? Because apparently he's not. And so what they're wondering is something like this. And this will just bring it right down now home to us. They're wondering something like, well, God says he has a plan for us. We know the Torah. And in the same way, we would know God has a plan for your life. But our experience is different than what we know. Our experience is, is that Assyria is brutally ruling over us. And so they're wondering, maybe it's true that might makes right. Do you know that phrase? Might makes right. You know what it is? It's kind of a, it's a way of critiquing the brutality of ultimate power. And that whoever has the most power can make the rules for whatever's right. And so they're thinking, well, maybe it's true. Assyria has all the might. Maybe they and their gods get to make what's right. They're wondering, is there any direction to history? If so, who's in charge? And the idea is, you're God? Well, then where is he? If he exists, here's the core question. If he exists, how do you explain his non-action given this set of circumstances? How do you explain Yahweh's non-action regarding his own people being brutally tyrannized by a foreign power? So if we just try to bridge, you know, that context to our own, it would go something like this, that bigger than life, kind of important people or huge armies with the newest weapons or intimidating nations, they arise from time to time on the world stage, right? There's got to be someone in this room who loves world history, and you could stand up right now and give us 10 or 15 examples where great powerful people or great powerful nations with the newest weapons are able for a time to exert their power over the earth, and they dominate the world, the daily news, and they seem so big that they appear to be central to what's going on. I, mean, I have to stop there and ask you to hear that. They appear to be central to what's going on. But they're not, not even close. 
a generation or two later, they're just plaques on a park bench. Right? Are you feeling me here? They're monuments in some square somewhere. But they have no real power. They have no real staying power. But they appear to be what's really going on. But in retrospect, they're always just futile and pitiable attempts at power grabbing and immortality. And as every century passes, these people and nations are reduced to, as I said, plaques and monuments, while the work and people of God go quietly moving on. And so to prophets like Nahum, who is, of course, speaking the mind of God, helping us to see what's true from God's angle, the danger with these pretenders is that the in vogue powers of any day will distract us from what's really going on at the center or at the core through the person and action of God who moves through quietness and prayer. So, you know, Putin strips off his shirt and you see him exercising, you know, he's all buff for his age. And the Chinese stock market wiggles a little bit and suddenly that's at the center of things. And when those things are at the center of our imagination, they will create a certain psychology, social psychology, and a certain set of behaviors. It's just automatic. But... And this is what Mike is trying to get at. If we can get to the place where we're no longer conditioned to respond to noise and size, we won't miss God's quiet action. Now, I just have to stop and say here, I I know that for some people, when they go on our website and, and they see that, oh, Holy Trinity says it values quiet and thoughtfulness and beauty. Think, oh, how charming. Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Trinity values quiet. No, it's not charming. This is one of those moments where I need you all to just look me in the eye. This is not charming. This is my deep experiential and pastoral knowledge that knows that you and I are addicted to noise. We're addicted to activity. We are prone to give our attention to those things that aren't central. And then you have this sort of self-reinforcing thing that happens. It's like a negative snowball going down a mountain. And if we don't at least once a week on Sunday morning, stop. You know, put a stick in the spokes. Just stop and pause. Think. And under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, reflect, pay attention, notice, be alert to what is actually central. This is what our prayers do. This is what the songs do. This is what the readings are meant to do. This is what this table is meant to do. It's meant to remind us weekly that we find ourselves in a story that's not governed by politics and economics as we know it. It's not governed by social systems as we know them. It's ultimately governed by God, who appears sometimes to not be very active. And this is why you must shh yourself. Because it's in that quieting of ourselves that we notice what's real. And so Nahum's trying to get us to refocus on God's main action, and that is he's trying to bring the whole world to rights through his judgment. And that he's seeking this, or seeking to give us this, I would say in my words, so that we have some divine assurance 
or excuse me, that through divine assurance and power, we would find a way to an antidote to anxiety and to what I want to call here spiritual and social depression. And I'm choosing those words carefully. I don't mean clinical depression. I don't mean uh, a temporary mood that somebody's going through who's suffering loss. I don't mean that. I mean a basic psychology wherein one no longer can see that God is moving at the center. And so what's produced in them is either anxiety or a kind of spiritual depression. So Nahum working against that, I want to just say two things this morning out of this passage. The first one is that God is serious business. And it looks like it's sort of like he's getting his tail kicked at halftime. But actually, he can't be trifled with, that he will avenge his foes, that he does stand up against his enemies, sometimes fierce and raging. But that God doesn't lose his temper. This isn't about a a person losing his temper. He's powerful, but as the message puts it, uh, it's a patient power. But still, in that patient power, no one gets by with anything. Sooner or later, everyone pays. And so what Nahum wants us to see is that God will liberate the afflicted that he will judge the oppressor and he will bring the good news of his activity breaking into the affairs of the world, that that will happen. That God isn't, there is a history and the history does have a, it's not secular, it's going somewhere. And that God is sovereign over this, but not necessarily actively in control of every aspect of reality. Now I know that's a little bit of philosophy here on a Sunday morning, but you need to try to get that. God is sovereign But that doesn't mean that he's necessarily actively in control of every aspect of reality. Omnipotence does not mean God has to act. Omnipotence means he can when he needs to. Omniscience does not mean God has to know everything. Like, does he have to know the liquid, the total liquid of all the mucus and all the sheep in Australia? Like, does he have to know that? Omniscience doesn't mean God has to know everything. It means God can know everything when he wants to know it. And that this, for his purposes, and that this gets at the heart of how God acts sovereignly, yet in a way that humankind still for now apparently gets its way. This is fundamentally what we are meant to hear in the gospel reading that Dennis read this morning. That's classic to kingdoms in conflict. The whole reason we chose to read Mark while we're reading the Minor Prophets is that Mark is the gospel of power encounters and kingdoms in conflict. And, and Mark is always telling us something more. I mean, yes, of course, it really matters that um, Jairus' daughter was healed. I mean, that matters beyond anything we can imagine. But it also shows God's victory over death. That if, if, you, if we were to take the whole context from Mark 1 up to Mark 5, you see that Jesus has been announcing the inbreaking of God's kingdom, of God's sovereign rule and reign. And now he's coming up against the conflict of sickness and death. And Jesus is saying, little girl, I say to you, he took her by the hand. I want you to try to picture this. Use your imagination here for a minute. Took her by her hand lifted her up and said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Okay, now look at me. Someday God is going to say to the whole cosmos, going to take his creation by its hand 
his metaphorical, their metaphorical hand, and say, arise. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans. The whole creation groans. But someday, what we saw happen in this little girl will happen in the whole cosmos. And God will take this earth, take it by its hand, and lift it, and whatever, wherever else there might be life in all of God's creation, he'll take it, lift it, and say, arise and come be what I intended you to be. This is what Nahum was wanting Israel to see. He was wanting them to hold out for and shoot for this interaction with God and his power and his goodness. So that's first, that God is serious business. Second, that God is good. That he's a hiding place is the language of Nahum. In tough times, that he recognizes and welcomes anyone looking for help, no matter how desperate the trouble. And this is important, the notion of God is good. This is the bedrock basis for faith. And only the knowledge, the genuine experiential knowledge that God is good can lead to a faith that expresses itself in trusting obedience. If you don't think God is good, you'll have a very hard time living consistently in trusting obedience. A number of months ago, I forget now, six months, a year ago, I forget, in a, in a sermon I said, never let yourself have bad thoughts about God. And I could see some you know, heads sort of kink, and we had conversations afterwards, and, and somebody brought it up, like, what, like, what do you mean? How do, and because I think what people thought they heard me saying was, do you mean I can't doubt? No, I'm not talking about don't doubt. I'm not talking about those doubts that flit through your head, or even a period of doubt. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about letting yourself positively think bad things about God. There is nothing good about that. That will not lead anywhere any good. You know, someone might say, well, it's just sort of, I'm going through a time of deconstruction. Well, you know, good luck with that. But there are other ways of doing that than thinking bad things about God. Jesus went to great, great lengths to teach about the kingdom of God in order to steady us precisely against believing anything bad about God. This was his whole message. Now, if you're, if you're still, if I still haven't quite convinced you, Genesis 3. The fundamental temptation was not an apple. The fundamental temptation was the first humans bought into the serpent's notion that God is not good. He doesn't actually care for you. He's actually holding you down. Right? Is somebody who's holding you down good? So the whole message of the serpent is, come follow me, and I'll, I'll, I'll like lift you up. But not God. God suppresses. Can't really trust him. Not if you want to be fully human, fully alive. See, that's where that thinking goes. And so Nahum wants to say, look, we're generations of brutal Assyrian tyranny over us. Nahum saying, even in the face of that, don't let yourself think bad things about God. That's not the way out of this. The way out of this is to realize he's serious business. For now, there appears to be kingdoms in conflict, but it's no genuine conflict. At some point, God's going to express himself. All pretend, pretending rulers will be put in their place, and you will see that God is good. This is what verse 15 is about, if you want to look at your passage there. 
Look, they're on the mountains. The feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims shalom. And so to put this in common English, it's something like Nahum saying, no more worries about this enemy. This one's history. Close the books on this one. God is going to deal with Syria. And then look at the very last lines. He then calls them to worship, to a holiday, to a celebration, to worship in which they recommit their life to God. And this is why week after week, as long as you allow me to have any say, we will be quiet and we will come to this table. We say every week as a spiritual discipline, taking the practices of church and making them a spiritual discipline. So that just little by little, incremental, week by week, as we pause to notice what's real about ourselves and God, as we nourish ourselves in his word spoken, in his word to us in his broken body, that little by little we would come to be able to abandon the outcomes of our lives to God. This is the great gift that Nahum wants his people to have. One of the greatest gifts we can ever have is that in the knowledge of God's sovereign supervision over history and in Jesus' gospel, the final inbreaking of this kingdom, it means that we can accept some really big important things. A, that in, from my own heart, soul, mind, and strength, I don't have to make this come out right, whatever this might be. I don't have to make it come out right. I don't have to try to make things happen. I don't have to try to get people to do things. I don't have to manage my image. That in the free and light yoke of Jesus, I can abandon outcomes to him. That's the secret of shalom. That's the secret of dealing with life as it comes to us. And this, I think, is the gift of Nahum's first oracle. Now, as we come to a moment of quiet, just around the passage that uh, Dennis read to us this morning, sort of mixed in around it, do you know that famous woman who for 12 years had um, a uh, hemorrhage basically happening? And you know the story that she presses through the crowds of people to touch Jesus. And I want you to just stop for a moment and again bow your head and close your eyes and make yourself still, whatever that might mean to you. In this moment, that might mean stilling anxiety or fear or even just the movements of your body. And as an analogy, as this woman pressed through the crowds of people to touch Jesus, I want to invite you now to press through the crowded thoughts of your mind and just to sit here for a moment and just to receive. Just for a few moments, just sit and receive. And let this big knowledge of the greatness and goodness of God, let any agitation in you begin to subside. And let any discord go. And to receive shalom, that good news of shalom. Receive 
by the Spirit, God's completeness, his wholeness. Maybe today for you, health, peace, or a sense of welfare, of being cared for well. Or maybe this morning you need to receive safety or soundness, tranquility, fullness. For many of you, rest and harmony. Receive the shalom of God.